Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11. If we were to conceive of the book of Hebrews as a race, it would be a half marathon. 13 miles and a half marathon. 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews. And this morning, uh, by the end of this morning's sermon, we will have made it just into the beginnings of chapter 12. So the finish line is almost there in sight. And speaking of races, we have the uh, Summer Olympics coming up at the end of July. Fingers crossed. At 11 p.m. last night, they were still on. I don't know if there's been news about cancellations, but they're still not sure. Um, we can pray for the sake of the athletes who have been training their entire lives to run that one race at the Olympics, that for goodness sake, they'd be able to do that. And the Olympics would continue. One Olympic team that has fallen on hard times as of late is the uh, men's, the U.S. men's 4x100 relay team. In 2008, they were disqualified because they dropped the baton. In 2012, they were stripped of a silver medal that they had won because it turned out one of their teammates had been uh, tested positive for doping. And then in 2016, the last Olympics, the men were again disqualified for a baton-related violation. The U.S. up till that point had been dominant for a century at men's relay. In fact, American relay teams have set the world record in the 4x100 17 times. Since 1920, American relay teams have won gold in the 4x100 meters 15 times. Just for perspective, there's only been 25 Olympics in the past 100 years. 15 of those times, the U.S. has won gold. But in 2008, we dropped the baton, and it's been downhill from there. You know, relay race really does come down to the pass of the baton. You can have the fastest runners in the world, but if they cannot pass one stick to another with speed and accuracy, either they're going to run a slow race because they're bungling the baton pass, or they're going to drop the baton and be disqualified. This morning, the author of Hebrews compares the Christian life to such a relay race. In fact, he says it's a race that mankind has been running since Genesis chapter 1. Every generation of God's people running different legs of the race, passing the baton from one generation to the next down through the ages. And the question is, what is this baton? What is this thing that we must not fail, number one, to receive, but also not fail to pass on? It's faith. Faith. At the end of chapter 10, our author made this bold statement. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. We are those who live by faith. 
And he doesn't just mean we here in the present or even we New Testament people. He's saying we as in all the people of God, past, present, and future, all live by faith. But then the million dollar question is, what is this faith? What do we mean by that word? If this is the baton that it's so essential that we receive and hand off, what is that? And what happens if we drop the baton? And then what must we do if we are faithful to receive the baton? What activity must we then engage in? All of those questions are answered this morning in Hebrews chapter 11. So why don't we stand together as we receive God's word. Beginning in Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through, though, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as in innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who seek thus, speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in fact was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, 
when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing on, in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps you've heard Hebrews 11 called by its nickname, the faith chapter. And uh, that's an apt nickname as the word faith appears 25 times in this chapter. And you heard it over and over again as the preacher in the book of Hebrews is driving home a particular point. By faith, by faith, by faith. We are not called to something fundamentally different today as Christians in the church than believers in any other age of the people of God, the Old Testament people of God included. Those who went before us were all running the same race as us, just different legs of the race, and we run it by the same faith. The question is, what is faith? Number one, 
faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We read it there in verse 1. Look at the definition with me. Now, faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Our family went to Charleston this weekend, and we were on the beach. And perhaps uh, you can relate. I'm sure everyone here has been to the beach. When you walk on the beach, your, uh, your foot presses into the sand. And even after you lift your foot out of the sand, that perfect imprint of your foot is left there. It's a vis visible evidence after your foot has disappeared that a foot with the very same dimensions and shape and size as yours does exist somewhere. Perhaps you've seen footprints from someone else. You know that there's a foot out there that exists that fits in that footprint perfectly. The sand is the proof. Well, when the things that we, the people of God, hope for when those things press into our lives, it produces the imprint of faith. When we see faith in our lives, it is clear evidence that the things we hope for are real. And they are out there. And they exist. Faith is the assurance, the confidence the substance of things hoped for, even though we don't see them right now. Peter says this is how you and I relate to our Lord Jesus right now. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. That's faith. Faith is the assurance of things Hope for it is believing and acting before seeing. We're reminded of the example of Noah, who was told to build an ark long before he saw the flood. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet, what? Unseen. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Or what about Abraham? who is told to leave his father's house and to go to a country which God says, I will show you. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the name of it. I'm not going to tell you what it looks like or where it is. I'll show it to you. Verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He had no idea where God was leading him. But he had the faith to act. And the truth of the matter, for every man and every woman of faith in the Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is that they all died in faith, not actually ever laying eyes on the object of their faith. The thing that God had promised. Not a single Old Testament saint laid their eyes on Jesus. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
what we see on display when we look at the stories of the Old Testament, when we look even at chapter 11 of Hebrews, this hall of faith, are people who are living their lives as if God has already kept his promises. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. F.F. Bruce writes, the promises that these people receive related to a state of affairs belonging to the future. God was making promises to them that he knew he wasn't going to keep until centuries, millennia later. But these people acted as if that state of affairs were already present. So convinced were they that God could and would fulfill what he had promised. It didn't matter if God was planning to fulfill this promise hundreds of years later. They were going to live as though God had already kept it because it's as good as done. As good as done. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is living as if God has already kept every single one of his promises. Faith is the confidence that God always keeps his word, that when God says something, that he will do something, it's as good as already done. When God promised Noah he would flood the earth, by faith Noah built an ark as though the rain was already falling. When God promised Abraham an inheritance by faith, Abraham went and lived in that land of promise as though God had already given it to him. It's Mother's Day. Here's an example of uh, a woman who mothered by faith in verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. There it is. God had promised that she was going to bear Abraham a son. That's that. She lived as though God was going to keep that promise. May God give us more mothers who have that kind of assurance of things hoped for. But what about Father Abraham? He was so certain that God was going to keep his promise about his son Isaac that it caused him to believe in the resurrection. That's what the author of Hebrews says there in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, now we're quoting the promise of God, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So this is the promise that it is in his mind as he's acting. And the only way he can reconcile the act God had called him to commit against Isaac and God keeping his promise was he had to believe this. He considered... God was able even to raise him from the dead. He was so sure in the promise of God that if he had to put his son to death, God must be a God who brings his son back to life because the one thing God cannot do is make a promise and not keep it. The assurance of things hoped for. What about Joseph? Verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Do you know how long it took God to keep that promise? 400 years. 400 years later, God keeps his promise to Abraham and brings the people out of Egypt. But Joseph is making directions right before his funeral about carrying his casket 
back to the promised land as though it were happening that day. By faith, these people acted. By faith, they accomplished great feats. But we are not told, interestingly, by how much faith. You go back into the Old Testament and read some of these people's stories, and you'll see there are moments when their faith is very small. <laughs> and it's faltering. And it's hanging by a thread. Many of these examples of faith are people who had at times little faith, imperfect faith. But this is the great truth of Hebrews 11. The amount of faith does not matter. Any faith in the Almighty God is saving faith, no matter how small. The amount of faith is immaterial. We do not put confidence in our faith. Faith is confidence in our God. Although we can't fault these people too much because the further we go back in the timeline of salvation history, the less the people had to go on. Did Noah have the scriptures? Any of them? Did Abraham have the church? Did Joseph have any of the gospels? Did Moses even know the name Jesus Christ? The truth is, we have so much more to go on than any of the people listed in Hebrews chapter 11. For truly, I say to you, Jesus is speaking. Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and they did not hear it. How dare we, standing on this side of the cross, not have faith? The hardest place to have faith is on that side of the cross, the side that all of these people are on. And somehow, by faith, they persevered to the finish. But now that Christ has come and the mystery of the ages has been revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus, how can we lack assurance of things hoped for? The hoped for one has come. The one who ran before us and those who passed on the baton to us are counting on us to keep running this race of faith. I wonder, will we drop the baton? The Christian life is taking what we have received and passing it off to other believers. We read by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, all the way through chapter 11. And the implication is that there is a linkage here that if a single one of them had failed to have faith, or had failed to pass on the faith, then the whole race would have been over. Will this relay of faith fail with us? This is the hard truth in verse 6. We are nothing without faith. Churches lose the faith for a variety of reasons. Sometimes churches hoard the baton 
and keep it to themselves, unwilling, for whatever reason, to pass the faith on to others. Churches lose the baton. They get so wrapped up in all kinds of activities going on that they lose the faith completely. Sometimes churches drop the baton. They fail to live lives that demonstrate and pass the faith on to the next generation. But secondly, we see this morning, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Look at verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is our second point. So we know the definition of faith and we must realize how priceless this faith is that without faith it is impossible to please God. So here's the first question we have to ask ourselves. Do I want to please God? You can't really take that for granted. Do I want to please God? Maybe you don't care about pleasing God. Maybe you care about pleasing yourself. Pleasing the people around you. Pleasing your friends. You have to ask yourself, do I even want to please God? But verse 6 raises an even more foundational question. Before we can even talk about pleasing God, we have to ask ourselves this first question. Does God even exist? What's the point of going about seeking to please a God who does not exist? In fact, that's what we believe all the other nations are doing. Does God exist? And if I believe this God exists, is there any point to seeking to please him? Will he reward those who seek him? Do I believe that this God who exists rewards people who seek to please him? Well, let's examine that for a moment. Does God reward those who seek him? In verse 4, we're told that by faith, Abel was commended as righteous. Does God reward those who seek him? In verse 5, we're told that by faith, Enoch was commended as having pleased God. Does God reward those who seek him? In verse 6 and 7, we're told that Noah became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Does God reward those who seek him? Skip on down to verse 35. We're told some were tortured refused acceptance so that they might rise to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They, were, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Does God reward those who seek him? Look at what all these people suffered for this God. Is he going to reward them for that? After all they've endured and suffered and the mistreatment and the beatings for their faith after being declared the losers of the world, will there come a day when God will reward them? What did God give them for their faith? He gave them Jesus. Does God reward those who seek him? 
Well, you can look into the face of our crucified and risen Savior, and there's your answer. He is the reward. Jesus is God's promise kept. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So the question is not whether God exists or whether he rewards those who seek him, but the question is, am I pleasing God? And you might be able to rephrase that by simply saying, am I living my life in whatever I am doing? Am I living and doing and acting by faith. Because we're told, without faith it is impossible to please God. So if you have faith, then you are pleasing God. By faith, Abel offered a sacrifice. By faith, Noah constructed an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive. By faith, Abraham offered Isaac. By faith, Moses left Egypt. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. Whatever you're doing, whatever your purpose, whatever your life endeavor, if you are not, if we are not doing it by faith, then you are not pleasing God. That's it. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. A church can endeavor to do many things, but none of them will please God if they are not done. By faith. You can seek to serve the Lord in your home, in your workplace, in your family, in your country, wherever, but the only obedience, the only work that pleases God is that which is done by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and without that faith, it is impossible to please God. Therefore, thirdly, let us run the race. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 12 together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The therefore in chapter 12, verse 1, is the strongest kind of therefore the Bible has to offer. It's kind of the equivalent of our phrase, to make a long story short, to sum it all up. Therefore, long story short, the whole point of the entire previous chapter of everything I've been trying to show you is that everyone else has run their race. It wasn't the same terrain. It wasn't the same time. It wasn't the same distance or the same company of runners, but it was the same race. And now it's your turn. It is your turn. Therefore, let us run the race. The word used there for race is the word agony. Many of you probably feel that way about running. <laughs> In this contest, this challenge, this race, God's word 
we see interrupting the lives of believers in ways that brings great pain and struggle and agony into their personal experience. And they demonstrate their faith by persevering and enduring in the midst of it. Abel brought a sacrifice and it gets him killed. His act of worship cost him everything. Noah's life interrupted. He's bebopping along with him and his family. God comes in and says, no, nope, you're building an ark now. Abraham, he's hanging out with his family and God comes and says, nope, you're leaving and I'm not telling where you're going and in fact, you're not going to own any of the land for your entire lifetime. Same for your son and his son. And then all of your sons are going to go down to Egypt. Moses, Living in the lap of luxury in Egypt, God says, nope, that's done. You're going to leave Egypt with all the people and take them into the wilderness. The race for all of these people brought agony into their life. In the eyes of the world, the race set before people like you and me is going to look like losing, like pain, like suffering, like defeat. It's going to look, brothers and sisters, like Jesus headed to the cross. I wonder what inconvenient, difficult, hard, punishing, perhaps even shameful race is the word of God calling you to run today. I wouldn't consider myself an expert on anything but I do know a thing or two about uh, endurance running. Uh, I would consider it a hobby, not an expert, but a hobby. I ran the Newberry Half Marathon a couple of years ago with uh, one of our former members, Nathan Wolf. And I made the mistake, they always say you should go out and drive the course sometime before you go out and run it so you know what to expect. I know Newberry pretty well. I know what it has to offer as far as uh, hills and stretches and stuff. And I did not drive the course big mistake. Uh, so we get out there on Saturday morning and I, I honestly did really well the first 12 miles. Um, I was buzzing along at a time like well past the speed I normally run. Breezing through downtown past Newberry College and the, the route took us actually by the church down Whitener Road and we ended up out on uh, Winsboro Road and connected to a road called Hillbrook Lane which swings you back towards the high school where the finish line was going to be. Well, it's called Hill Brook Lane for a reason. Because as that road approaches Main Street, guess what lies there? A hill. So we've run 12 miles. This was just very cruel, I think, uh, the people who drew the route, to put a hill this late in the race. But... Everyone is running and thinks they're going to beat their best time ever. And we all are hitting this hill. And it's just like immediately we're all stopping. And we're just trying to keep the legs churning. People are throwing up on the side of this hill. It's disgusting. And we're just trying to make it to the top. And it's literally like another 300 yards to the high school, to the finish line. If you can just make it up the hill. Endurance is not for the easy races. You don't need endurance for that. Endurance is for the hard ones. 
the ones that turn out to be longer than you expected. The ones that are steeper than you could ever imagine. The ones that ask everything of you, the ones that may even cost you your life. So often in the Christian life, the hardest part of the race is the finish. Because that's where you need endurance. It's easy to start a race well. It takes endurance and perseverance to finish well. The author of Hebrews says, but as hard as the race may feel at this stage, can't you almost see him? Can't you see him standing there at the finish line? Just, just look out there in the distance. Can't you see Jesus, the founder and perfecter of the faith? Don't you know that he ran this race and he's made it to the finish line and he's going to be there waiting for you who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame and he made it to the finish. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, he's ours and he's run the race ahead of us in all of its agony and pain and suffering and endurance. And having endured the suffering of the cross and the apparent defeat of the grave, he has been raised from the dead and now is seated on a throne that is at the top of the podium. The victor. Evidence to us and to all the world that a reward is waiting for those who make it to the finish line. Therefore, let us run. I barely made it to the top of Hillbrook Lane. But can you imagine if I was running that race with ankle weights and a, and a backpack full of sand? There's no way. There is no way I would have just keeled over at the bottom of that hill and said, send the ambulance and you can drive me back. But some of us are trying to run the race set before us with all kinds of baggage. Lust, fits of rage, gossip, Slander tied around our ankles and grudges, arrogance, envy, deceit, malice slung over our backs. Brothers and sisters, the race is hard enough on its own. If we're going to try to run it with all these weights of sin on us, it will be impossible. Why are you holding on to that pride? That anger, that hatred, that selfishness, that disobedience. You're only making the race harder for yourself. You're never going to make it. We've got to cast those weights at the foot of the cross so that we can run the race set before us with endurance. Because we have to make it to the top of the hill. You may have to stop on the side to purl, but get back on track and we're going to make it to the top. Therefore, let us run the race. You know, as Christians, I think we often think that our objective when we're looking at Jesus is that we're looking backwards at the cross and everything Jesus accomplished, which is true. But the author of Hebrews calls us to join the cloud of witnesses and all the people he listed, they weren't looking back. They were looking forward. The truth of the matter is that every man of faith, every woman of faith, every person who has ever run this race and who has been faithful to pass on the baton, has been running in the same direction with their eyes pointed in the same direction as well. Looking to Jesus, 
that is looking forward. So let us run looking to Jesus. He's not some person buried in the past. He's someone who lays ahead. We look forward to meeting who has been crucified, buried and raised and enthroned at the finish line, waiting to greet every single one of us as we cross. Faith is the assurance that Jesus is there waiting for us. And without that faith, it is impossible to please God. Therefore, let us run the race by faith. Well, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets. Of Mr. David Crumpton and Miss Corey Brown, Miss Terry Dissel and Bobby Handy, Miss Jackie Boozer and Mary Clark and all the members of College Street Baptist Church who have run the race ahead of us. They have passed to us the baton. Will we run the race by faith? Will we have the faith to pass that baton on to the next generation? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the encouragement we have received from your word today. As hard as these words are sometimes to receive, they give us great courage. We are not alone. All the saints before us know exactly the plight that we have been put in, trying to act on promises that we have not yet seen come to fruition. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us a great advantage, though, and that our Lord Jesus has come and has died and has been raised. And we trust, even though that we don't see him now, we will see him one day very soon. Help us to run the race by faith. In the meantime, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.